Hello and welcome to the Swift Coders Podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Stephen Hepting. Stephen is an iOS engineer at Airbnb in San Francisco, where he focuses on build tools. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thanks so much for having me, Garrick. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it is. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Stephen and I recently met at uh, Swift Summit in San Francisco at the Palace of Fine Arts Theater. Uh, Stephen was presenting on uh, Swift and Raspberry Pi. I'll let him explain more about about that. And uh, yeah, just like great energy. Uh, I thought, you know, it's really cool. I think maybe you're one of the only people that's like doing Swift on Raspberry Pi and talking about it, at least the only person I've heard of. And to me, this is what I want to do with the podcast is like meet all the different kinds of people that are doing the different kinds of things you can do with Swift and uh, learn about them and learn about what they're doing. And so that's why I wanted to have uh, Stephen on. And I just learned that he works at Airbnb. I didn't even know that. So uh, tell us about um, what you're what you do uh, just a little bit. Like, what do you do at Airbnb exactly? Sure. Well, I am on the team responsible for build tools for all the mobile developers. So far, we have around a hundred mobile developers, half and half, iOS and Android, and our goal is to make all the builds fast and to make sure that the tests are run regularly and giving good insight into code that might be passing or failing and doing just little lint jobs on a continuous integration server so that developers can know whether their tests are, or their code is working before they merge it into master. Uh, compile times, you know, and building and testing obviously is really important. I mean, the, the compile times is something I've been dealing with um, a lot, you know, because I'm working with Swift mm. and um, we all know that compile times with Swift are, are um, considerable. Uh, I, I didn't really work with Objective-C, so I don't know what it's like compared to Objective-C. So is that a part of what you're doing, like making sure um, that the compile times are fast? It, it, are you working with like a mixed project or... Yeah, that's definitely a big part of it. At Airbnb uh, last year, at one point, the clean builds were taking 45 minutes. Wow. And more recently, with new versions of Swift and changes to our compile flags and our project layout, we've been able to get a clean build down to about nine minutes or so. Wow. Okay, so I definitely going to be picking your brain on this uh, on this topic a little later. Uh, did you see the uh, post in iOS Dev Weekly? It was like linking to, to I think a GitHub repo of like um, it keeps track of all the different like articles related to Swift compile times, like how to improve them. I just saw the headline for a recent article this last week, and one of the key changes was something that we do internally and was the big change about turning on whole module optimization, which okay. even though it should be slower, is for interesting reasons faster. So that was just one piece. Okay, so we're definitely going to be getting into this. This is something that's really important to me. And I know it's really important to a lot of other people out there, um, companies, and to um, Apple and the Swift team. Uh, so is that how much of like the compile, like making compile times faster is like 
a part of the work that you're doing right now? Is that like a big part, a, a small part, or like a just a good amount? Or It's definitely one of our goals for the quarter. Okay. And we're approaching it from whichever direction we can, whether it's compile times or test times or even just setting up dependencies with something like Bundler or whatever it might be. Is Each of those can make it faster. And so we focus on all of those. Okay. So at Airbnb, your relationship to Swift is like you work with um, build you know, kind of compile times and, and, and build like the way the projects are built. Um, and outside of Airbnb, your relationship to Swift, it seems like is, is mainly related to like your work that you're doing with Swift on Raspberry Pi. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So just briefly, like what does that even mean, Swift on Raspberry Pi? <laughs> so Swift originally came out for Apple platforms and it was pretty awesome. Um, and then Apple opened it up and it became available for uh, Linux and people got excited about trying to port it for any other platform they can think of. And so the Raspberry Pi is the one that I care about trying to use Swift to interact with the real physical world. Okay, and just can you give us a quick example of something that you would want to make? So, for instance, like on an iPhone, I might want to make an iPhone game. But with Raspberry Pi, like what is something I might want to do? Oh, yeah. You could do all sorts of things, whether it's a little robot that you want to just try out and have fun with, maybe for your pet or you have kids or you want to have a project. Uh, also, something that I like is around the home turning on lights or measuring some temperatures and getting a bit of a graph and idea about whether this room gets cold at night, things like that. Okay, that's super awesome. And then in terms of like the actual work, what is that? Um, like, what is that? What are you doing? Like, are you, I mean, I guess you're, you're like, you're writing code, right? You're like writing Swift code on Raspberry Pi, or is there like pre-work that you need to do before you can even do that? Yeah, there's really three pieces to it. The writing Swift code is uh, my favorite piece, but since it's running Linux, there's also a bit of system administration, getting the right packages installed, making sure your kernel modules are ready to talk over hardware communication channels. Okay. And the last bit would be connecting up the actual wires into breadboards or soldering some different sensors Whoa. or switches. And so that would be the third bit. Well, okay. All right, so we're definitely going to get into that as well. Um, I think those are probably the two main topics we're going to dig into. But before we do all that, I want to back up and learn about uh, who you are, how you got to where you are, um, and how you got into programming. So can you um, just, yeah, let us know about, about all that. Sure. I, I'm actually a Canadian, and I come from the middle of Canada, which is uh, kind of surprising to a lot of people. It's about halfway between Toronto and Vancouver. And I actually wanted to be a car mechanic when I was growing up. But I could see that you don't need as many car mechanics around when there's computers in cars. And so I thought I'd take electronics engineering in college, which was awesome. I got to work at a couple of cell phone companies. But it turns out that way more people want you to make software than to make a circuit board. So I did software for a couple of years. And then I realized that I was going to get left behind if I didn't uh, learn how to make mobile apps. I had actually seen my in-laws using an iPad when the desktop computer was too complicated for them. And I, I realized I should probably make a change in my career. And so I actually quit my job right around WWDC time 
and I watched all the videos and I did tutorials online, I thought in a couple months I could probably learn how to be an iOS developer. And then four months later, everyone was wondering whether I was going to be okay. And I finally got a job offer. And then by the end of the year, I had moved down to San Francisco. And life was pretty exciting all of a sudden. Wow. Okay, you took us through that pretty quick. So I want to I wanna go through some of those pieces bit by bit and try to understand this evolution. Uh, you said you wanted to be a, a car mechanic. <laughs> uh, around what time was this? Were you in high school? Were you in college? Uh, probably just the first year of high school, something yeah. like that. And did you have a car? Were you working on like an old beat up Cadillac or something? Nope, I didn't have a car. I didn't know anyone who's a mechanic. It just seemed like a pretty awesome thing to do. Okay, why do you do you? I guess uh, we had a class actually where we could do mechanics, and it was so neat to see how things work under the hood, so to speak. And something that everyone uses every day is cool to be able to say, "I know how that compression is able to." get the explosion to be more powerful. And I know why you have to set a spark at this time to be able to propel the car forward. And understanding how that works was really exciting to me. So when you uh, changed your mind from mechanic to, um, like, I think you said you were dealing with hardware, computer hardware. Yeah. Um, had you already invested a lot of time into becoming a mechanic? Oh, no, not at all. It was okay. very much a... Uh, uh, a fleeting idea in my head. And right away, I thought I should think of something that will last longer into the future. And I can see electricity sticking around forever, even, <laughs> even in a time when a lot of my friends were joining petroleum engineering. Oh, I wow. did electronics engineering. So was there anybody around you telling you that you should be a mechanic or shouldn't be a mechanic? Um, my parents were excited in me doing whatever I was excited about. And even though there weren't any engineers or software developers in my family, my mom actually set up a chance to meet an engineer for a day for take to kid, take your kid to work day. So I was with some random guy and he showed me how the power systems worked in my city. Oh, wow. That's, that's so great. Thanks to your mom, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. How did she think to set you up with an engineer? I think she saw that I was interested in taking things apart or interested in how things worked inside. And I'm just really thankful that she ended up doing that. Yeah, I wonder how she translated your interest in sort of how things work into engineering. Like, I wonder how she knew that that was a connection. Yeah, I have no idea. Well, thanks again, Mom. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you meet this engineer. Uh, you go to take, you know, take a kid to work day. You meet this engineer. And did you... Like, was that transformative? Was that important for you? Or did you not really think much of it? Did you not like that field trip? At the time, I think I didn't realize how neat it was and what was so interesting. But looking back on it and seeing the graphs I saw of the electricity usage for the whole city and then seeing the spikes when a, a nearby factory would turn on its giant furnaces and how they would actually call each other on the phone before they did it to make sure the power for the city would be stable. It was really neat looking back on it. Wow. So did you end up uh, studying 
computers uh, in school, like in high school? Did you kind of switch and start taking more computer-related classes? I didn't have a whole lot of opportunities to do that. There was one particular computer science class I was a little bit late for, and it was an advanced placement class in the morning before school started, and I was too too late to register. But my dad said, hey, I know you wanted that real basic software for the Mac. I'll pay for that, which was $200, and if you take this class. And so I went, and I took this class, and there was no teacher actually certified to teach it, but they gave us all a textbook, and we could work through it if we wanted. And at the end of the year, there was someone certified to give us a test. And so that was really my advanced placement computer science that got me into programming. So was the class that you took outside of school, it was like a separate um, thing you did outside of school, or was it a part of high school? It was at the high school itself, uh, but it was an extra class at 7.30 in the morning before the regular classes started. Uh, okay, and, and then so you took that class, you passed the test, which allowed you to get into the advanced class. Passing that class meant that I, I could skip one college class and uh, get into a level higher, which was actually taught by someone who contributed to Firefox in his free time. And so oh, that wow. was pretty encouraging to see a real computer science professor working on real projects instead of just some academic stuff. So what did you do after high school? I went through a full electronics engineering degree. I took a, an extra semester because I played competitive ultimate frisbee and I wanted time for that. Cool. <laughs> and in that, we learn a little bit about electronics and a little bit about programming, but they joke that engineers as uh, software engineers are not great because they'll just write any code, bang at the keyboard, and once it works, they're done. No refactoring, no design patterns or, or anything. And so that was something that I had to work past by reading online about what good algorithms and design patterns would really be. So you're saying that the electrical engineers kind of look down to the software engineers? Um, the other way around when it comes to uh, programming in particular, that electrical engineers didn't have very good practices when it came to maintaining and building an extensible system. Oh, I see. Okay. So this uh, electrical degree, it was like mostly about building computers or about building electronics, but you did a little bit of programming. At what point did you like realize that you wanted to do um like programming versus like just working on hardware. I know you mentioned something about your your grandparents playing with an iPad. Was was there was that the time, or was there some other time when you started actually transitioning from electronics to programming? Well, there was one key project where we had to solder five or six chips together in a very certain configuration, and I realized if I could just have a little microcontroller on the board, that I could fulfill all the requirements of each of these homework assignments just with a little bit of C code. And that would have been wonderful, but getting a programmer working for a microcontroller has lots of extra little pieces that I failed to get set up. So that was the programming excitement bit, and it was later on that I saw that maybe iOS and mobile is really a place I should be. That was after I had been in my career for several years. 
So when after you got your electrical engineering degree, did you actually work as a electrical engineer? I worked at a startup building software for chip designers. So this is a piece of software that we would sell for a hundred thousand dollars per seat per year. That's quite wow. a quite an in-app purchase, <laughs> and um, it would run a bunch of simulations on the chips before they're actually fabricated. And if it catches an issue, it's almost like tests. And if it catches an issue, it means that you saved yourself ten million dollars. Wow! And so that's why that's why people would pay for this software. And it has uh, actually kept growing. That uh, seventeen of the top twenty semiconductor companies in the world now use this software. So it is really neat place to be. Really great group of folks. And uh, I definitely missed leaving there to work at home learning iOS for those first few months. So the company's still around? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay. So it's you built this software that would somehow, it would like look at the chip design, which is still just like a graphic design or or some sort of design that's built in some program. I don't know, like a, almost like CAD or something. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Is there a specific program that chip designers use to design their their chips, I guess? There's a couple of big companies in this industry. One's called Cadence and one's called Synopsys. And they each have loads of tools, all for more than $10,000 per user per year. And you probably need um, 10 of these programs to be able to do your job as a chip designer well. So it's one of those industries where they say they pay the most per employee for software costs each year. Wow. Okay, so I'm a chip designer. I'm using this program that costs a lot to like, or actually multiple programs to design my chip. And then I run my chip design through your that, that software that you worked on yeah. to test my design. Yeah. Yeah. In particular, it tests whether the the variation when you build this in actual silicon, you want something to be 50 nanometers, but actually it's 49 or 51. And we use a lot of statistics to see how big each transistor will be and to see which ones might fail. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. That that stuff trips me out. Like, how are they even making things that small? Like, when you talk about nanometers, I mean, that's really small. And then you have, like, a billion transistors in there. Like, how – I mean, you must have, like, little nano-micro robots, like, making these things. Like, how does that even work? It's, like at this point, a transistor is like one little dot of, like not even a dot, like smaller than like a little pebble, like a piece of sand or even smaller than that. It's absolutely amazing how they do it because the transistors are much smaller than the smallest wavelength of light that they use to craft these features. Oh my gosh. And it's the first time I tried to convince my grandfather that there was a billion transistors in my phone, he couldn't believe it because he had built a transistor radio with a log and a t-shirt and some wire. And so I, I couldn't convince him that there was a billion transistors inside there. <laughs> wow. So he knows how big a transistor is, right? Like the yeah. whatever transistor he's familiar with. And he's yeah. like, wait, how do you fit a billion of those into there? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. So that sounds like really interesting, exciting. It also It also sounds like it's almost like real programming right it's like 
you're like programming before programmers do programming, right? Like you're doing like the first kind of almost kind of stuff. Obviously, we're all standing on shoulders uh, of giants, right? But yeah. So, how, like, tell us about you know you quit this, you quit your job, which seems like it was probably a really good job. You're you're telling your parents like, okay, you're gonna you're gonna live at home, or I don't know where you were living, but you're like you're gonna move at home, you're gonna live there for a couple months, and you're gonna teach yourself programming. Like, it seems like a big decision. Can you tell us about that decision, how you felt, why you made it, what people are telling you? Sure, sure. Yeah, a lot of people said, oh, that was a really courageous thing to do. But in fact, I really did it out of fear that that I was scared, that I was learning a lot at work, and that I might get into this career path that maybe wouldn't be able to keep uh, providing in a decade or two decades. And it was my in-laws who had used an iPad. We had bought them an iPad to help them use their computer. And they could realize that if there was a red number, that means that they had a email or a Facebook message and they didn't need to know where files were. And Steve Jobs talks about this, uh, freedom from as being even more important than this freedom to sometimes. And the way that iOS is really simple, it, it allows you to feel like you understand how to use it. And I've gradually come to see how important that is for a lot of the world. And so that was kind of what wanted me to get into uh, learning a new type of development and to be able to uh, build apps for this coming generation of people who might not have a desktop sitting on their desktop anymore. <laughs> So there's a couple things uh, there. The first is the freedom from versus freedom to. So the iPad or iOS, let's say, it gives you freedom from having to think about where your files are or freedom from needing to do, like moving your files around versus mm -hmm. like you have the freedom to access your files. Mm -hmm. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially during those first couple years of Android and iOS, when people with Android phones would always say, hey, I can have this background process running and it can go and check these network servers and do all this great stuff and I can have whatever I want on my lock screen. And that was the freedom to run whatever you wanted on your phone. And on iOS, we couldn't do those things. But then Apple gradually added the ability to perform regular network requests when you weren't using your phone based on how much you use the app. And then for iOS, we had the freedom to use our phone without having to charge it all the time. And that was kind of the trade-off of being really strict about the things you were allowed to do with an app. And then it allowed the phone to be pretty smart about when it would turn on the, the radio modem to talk to the cell phone towers and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I can kind of see it like freedom too is... Um is good for like a power user, whereas freedom mm. from is good for like an everyday user. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And it seems like that's what um, Apple's been trying to do from the very beginning is like make com make computing more personal, um, make it more accessible. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the other thing you mentioned was uh, people thought what you did was courageous, but you did it out of fear. You It was a very like rational thing. You felt like what you were doing at the time um, might not have... Uh, as long of legs as um, what you were seeing coming, uh, mobile computing. Why did you feel that way? I mean, aren't we always going to need 
chip designers and programs to support chip designers? <laughs> I think you're right. Uh, but in my city, in Canada, there was really only three software companies. And so to uh, we didn't necessarily have the same opportunities that you might have here in the Bay Area, where now I can absolutely see that if I wanted to keep working on chip design software, I could still work at 10 or 20 places in the Bay Area. But um, my options were a little more limited, and I didn't actually have any plans to move to the United States in my life. I see. So it was sort of like your perspective of where you could even live sort of um, shrunk your perspective on like your possibilities. Yeah, definitely. That's sort of how I feel like when I don't have a car, like sometimes I'll have a car, (laughs) I'll go like years and I'll have a car. And then like when I was in law school, I was like, I don't need a car. So I just gave it to my brother because like, what do I need a car for? I'm in (laughs) law school. And like my idea of what I could do, especially in a given amount of time, totally shrunk because it's like, okay, well, I'm on foot now. And I might have to take a bus or I might have to walk Hmm. versus like when you have a car, it's like you can kind of do anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay. So tell us about how, take us to that moment when you quit uh, and then what do you do? So like, did you already had it, you already had it figured out? Like, yep, I'm definitely going to become an iOS developer or a mobile developer. And like, what do you do? (laughs) So I had come back to work after a long weekend and it was awesome to see the team again and get back into the routine. But I realized that Monday morning that it'll be really easy to stay in this routine. And I think that if I don't do anything in the next 45 minutes, I, as a person, have I'm just really used to going along with the flow and not wanting to rock the boat, not wanting to be a hassle. And so I... Even though I wanted to think it through a little bit more, I knew that I had about 45 minutes. So I went and talked to my manager and I just shared what I was thinking. And and I had thought through the economics that I really wanted to go to WWDC, but it'd be a couple thousand dollars plus the same for hotels and then some money for a flight, which wouldn't be cheap. And I thought that's about actually what I make in two months of an engineer salary at this current job. So it would be the same price to go to this conference for a week or to work on tutorials online and watch the videos for two months. And so that was my thinking, really just economically. I think that this is the cheapest way to do it if I want to get into iOS. Why did you feel like you only had 45 minutes? I would have just wanted to not be a hassle to my boss for him to have to find a new engineer. And I knew that I would just go with the flow after that and I'd stay at this job forever. Right, but like, why that number? Why 45? Oh, I was still pumped about the weekend and thinking long-term for my life. And it's easy to let your immediate surroundings kind of guide you once you're in an environment, I think, and certainly for myself. For about 45 minutes or so. I I, I think I know what you're talking about. Like sometimes I'll be on my way to work and I'll be super pumped. uh, And like I come into the office and I'm super like pumped and I'm like expressing my energy. And then like one little thing happens. Like let's say I I get into my work or I don't know, I I bump my knee. And then all of a sudden like I totally forget 
like every, you know, how this whole energy that I had. And I, th I think that's kind of what you're saying. Like 45 minutes is, is enough to sort of lose that energy from the weekend. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So, I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Like you, you know, you just like go into your, what, what did you tell your boss exactly? I mean, like, were you like, Hey, I think I'm going to quit or what were you kind of, what did you tell him? <laughs> uh, I have a little bit of memory and a little bit of what I imagine I said. I think it was something that I've, I've been here for three years and I love the stuff we're working on, particularly Python on Linux is awesome. But I really feel like for my career, I need to get into mobile and learn how that works. And so that's my plan. I'm going to give it a shot. And thanks so much for all you've done for me so far. Wow. And what did he say or she say? He said, wow, is there anything we can do to convince you? Maybe <laughs> otherwise? Or are there any other issues? Like, surely you must be mad at your boss or something. I said, no, no, I, I really like it all here. But this is just something I think that I, I need to do now in my life. And so I'll definitely see you around, I guess. Wow. And how did you know about WWDC? Like, had you been following Apple and WWDC before that? Or how did you know that there was this conference that you should go to? Oh, yeah. My family had been a Macintosh family forever. And this was actually around iOS Four, I think this wasn't right at the beginning and I didn't even have an iPhone I only had an iPod touch and an iPad with cellular connectivity so my iPhone was actually the first one was an iPhone 4s oh wow yeah so in that sense I feel like I got into it a little bit late but it was no way <laughs> yeah I mean I had an original iPhone wow and it didn't occur to me that I could program until, or make an iOS app until January 2014. <laughs> and I had the original iPhone. Wow, oh, that's awesome. I actually uh, had a, a plan for how I would get my first job in the United States. I had seen some cases where people would make ads on Google for the manager they wanted to work for. They would target them. And I had actually tried this with my wife. I made an ad on Facebook targeted for my wife. And I had heard ideas about sending a FedEx package to someone on a Friday. So hopefully they got it right away. Someone would make sure they get it before the weekend. And so for my iPad, my plan was to FedEx them an iPad with my resume app that I was building that had a table view, a little video intro, some maps and different scroll views and things. And my plan was to send another FedEx envelope inside with a letter saying, hey, this is a project I've worked on all on my own with no libraries. Hopefully I can pick up this iPad when I come down for an interview. But if not, please send it back in the other envelope because it's the only one that I have. <laughs> <laughs> Did you actually do that? Did it work? Uh, I, I didn't end up having to do that. I had a couple interviews. I just accepted the first job I got after several phone screens didn't go well and a bunch of companies turned me down even just after a phone screen. But after that, every in-person interview so far has, has been a success. What was the first uh, job you got? It was a company called Yammer. They oh, yeah. were Yeah. 
enterprise social network. I was iOS developer number three, which became number two by the time I arrived. Someone had already burnt themselves out. <laughs> wow. How long did you work there for? I was there for two and a half years. Oh, wow. Okay. And then was it Yammer to Airbnb or was there anything in between? Uh, I actually went upstairs in the same building to Twitter and I was at Twitter for three years. Okay. Then Airbnb. Then Airbnb. That's just recently this year. Wow. That's awesome. Congratulations, man. That's that's great. And so when you set out to uh, to, to learn iOS development, uh, what did you... Like, did, so did you end up going to DubDub? No, because it was so expensive. And I wasn't actually making much at my other software engineering job. And so I just did tutorials online and worked with Xcode trying to build a resume application for my iPad. Okay. And then have you been to DubDub since then? I've been for about two days to really? one DubDub. That's, that's all I've ever been to. Yep. Really? I mean, all those years as an iOS developer... I mean, I guess Twitter is a big company, maybe, so it, you know, it'd be hard to go. They can't send everybody. Airbnb is big, so they can't send every iOS developer. But, mm -hmm. I mean, all these years, you've only been for two days? Yep, that's it. They were wonderful two days. That's it. Let's get uh, Steven to dub dub, everybody. You know what? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm seeing it now. I'm seeing you presenting Raspberry Pi, Swift on Raspberry Pi at dub dub uh, one of these years. One year. Let's do it. I'm seeing it now. Um, okay, so are you are you glad that you didn't go to DubDub at that time? Because like my feeling is like you don't really need to go to DubDub. I mean, obviously you know that now. Like you don't need to go to DubDub to become an iOS developer. Like mm -hmm. I'm assuming you're happy with that decision. Um, Definitely happy with it. And for me at the time, my biggest struggle was getting in some contiguous time to remember everything I learned, rather than just nights and weekends and being able to do it all day every day for a little while in a row was really what helped it out for me yeah okay so you quit you weren't working you just were studying full-time yep yeah awesome i mean that's definitely if you have the ability to do that i would definitely recommend it. i mean i sort of did that um i didn't have to work full-time thank you so much to lucy she she took care of me she was my sugar mama at the time um, but I did work a little bit, you know, I tried to make like a few, maybe 300 bucks a week doing Uber. And then I would just try to study, um, the rest of the time, at least, uh, at least an hour a day though, is all I really needed. Um, and then yeah, anyways, I, I totally feel you on that. Um, okay. What would you say was like the biggest thing that like helped you, um, like study on your own? Was there a particular resource or a style besides the fact that you, you dedicated that like continuous time. I think having a real project that I knew I would have to build this iPad app if I wanted to be able to show it to anyone and to convince them to give me a job that I'm just some little guy from the middle of Canada that if I can't show that I can actually build something, I think all will be for, for not. So having that real project really helped. I'd love to say that the Stanford course was super easy for me or that the first Ray Wenderlich tutorials I read really under, made me understand everything. But, you know, it was definitely a struggle a lot of times. So even though you had been doing electrical engineering and programming for all, you know, for at least a couple of years yep. um, and you were doing Python, like you still, it was still hard to, to learn iOS development. What, yeah. what, what was the difficult part? Well, Objective-C was a little bit different 
with the different bracket syntax and named arguments and understanding what happened if something was nil. And then after that, just figuring out how the shift was actually happening, where properties were just being introduced and arc was just introduced, so only some of the code had manual memory management. And then, as everyone knows, uh, table views were <laughs> a really difficult thing to get for those first few years. The whole like section and row index thing and, and dequeuing? Yeah, and I had been adding cells into a table view when you tapped to be able to add detail for each place that I had worked at. Okay. And so you'd have to offset each index if it was after the inserted detail cell and all sorts of things like that. That was the biggest struggle. Yeah, yeah. Dealing with indexes for sure is uh, is like. I mean, that's if if you could just study like one thing, I would say just be and to be really good at like programming, it could just be like indexes. Like I'm dealing with a little <laughs> algorithm problem right now, just for fun. Yeah. And I have to keep track of like these sort of three different indexes. <laughs> um, and uh, and anyways, yeah. okay. So uh, I want to get into all the work that you're doing um, with Swift, the uh, so Swift on Raspberry Pi, um, improving Swift compile times. Uh, but before we do that, I want to take a quick break for a couple of announcements. Um, the first announcement is about the uh, Swift Coders group in Kent. Um, I'm assuming SE stands for Southeast England. Um, this is a new uh, Learn Swift LA, or sorry, like, yeah, Learn Swift, Swift Coders type of group um, created by Greg uh, Jask. Jaskowish? I don't know. It's it's all put in the show notes. I think it's a Polish name, and I always have trouble pronouncing those those names. Um, and yeah, he he asked me to announce it on the podcast because he wants people to know about the group and uh, to 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 join the group. So if you are in Kent, Southeast England, um, join that group and uh, meet up with Greg and everybody else and learn about Swift. Uh, and I will post a link to uh, to Greg's Twitter and to the uh, group on uh, it's a Facebook group, and I think he said he was going to create a meetup group too. Um, but I'll, I'll post a link to the Facebook group. Um, so yeah, good job, Greg, and have fun uh, meeting up and learning about Swift. The next and last announcement is the Swift Community Awards. I'm not involved in this uh, in any way. I just thought it was kind of cool. I'm, I'm on the fence about this kind of stuff. Uh, I do like the idea of, of community awards, though. Uh, it's just, um, I don't know, it's kind of like some people get left off and maybe feel bad and, and things like that. But, I mean, I, it's, a, it's a community thing. So uh, the more and more of the community is involved, the more and more, like, the people who deserve to be, like, awarded I guess would kind of be on there. Um, and it's created by uh, Hacking with Swift. I think his name's Paul Hudson. I haven't had him on the podcast yet. Um, I hope to have him on uh, in the future. And the reason I'm bringing it up uh, is that a couple of uh, sort of related uh, things like were nominated. Um, let me see, the Swift Community... I thought I had it up already. Swift Community Awards. Here we go. So um, Fireside Swift, um, you know, a related podcast 
on our network uh, was nominated, as well as the Swift Coders podcast. I mean, and, and then all the usual suspects are on there. Swift by Sundle, Swift Unwrapped, Fatal Error. Um, and then that's pretty much it in terms of like related to, to kind of me or, or my community. Um, so go on there and vote. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. But one thing I wanted to point out, which was uh, the developer of the year. It's really interesting, and uh, I haven't voted yet, and I don't even—I don't think I'm going to vote. Um, but if I was to vote for Developer of the Year, I definitely would probably have to vote for John Sundell. He's uh, or Sundell. He's on there. Um, I'm not sure if we want to do this kind of stuff in our community, um, but uh, we'll see. We'll see how the div- these these awards go. If people vote and people have fun, maybe we'll do it. You know, maybe we'll, they'll do it again. But yeah, I feel like John Sundell has just been crushing it like project after project anyway so that's it for announcements what do you think about any of that stuff uh, steven i think it's wonderful just to highlight some people working on cool things and just who might be an encouragement for someone to just take the next step for whatever thing they were trying to work on as well agreed (laughs) okay let's get into the big topics before we do that uh, Swift comes out in uh, what June two thousand fourteen. Uh, do you remember when Swift comes out? What, where were you? What was going on? What did you think? What did you think? I was actually working on Twitter Kit at Twitter, and uh, releasing a closed source SDK has a load of special cases that you need to consider. And so for us, we actually weren't able to take advantage of Swift right away. On my team. And even uh, Twitter as a company decided to just hold off a little bit on jumping in for the main Twitter app, and they just used it for the Apple Watch app to start and to see how well it went. Yeah, so the closed source uh, uh, library, is that r- relating to ABI stability? Like uh, you, you can't like release it because of ABI stability? Yes. Yeah, loads of people say they need ABI stability, and usually it's not the case. This is one of the cases where it did require ABI stability for us to be able to ship one version of our SDK and any app to be able to use it right away. Um, The only choice we could have had would be to release maybe several versions of our SDK for each version of Swift that was out. But it seemed like the most sense was to either open source everything and then it can be Swift or Objective C, or just uh, keep using Objective C internally. When did you start using Swift? Then, um, whether it was professionally or personally, I tried experimenting right away because it seemed like uh, definitely something in the future, and that's something that I was sort of concerned about, or I, I often am, you know, wanting to have a good backup plan and wanting to understand some of the newer concepts like making sure that your code is working well with types in more places and rather than just using strings and things like that. So it had a lot of good lessons to learn whether you were going to be using it for your day job or not. What was uh, some of the first projects that you started uh, doing in Swift? Were they just little projects or how did you kind of go from just playing around with Swift to then working on uh, Raspberry Pi? Oh, 
Well, we would actually use it for our test app internally at Twitter. And so that allowed us to use it a little bit every day. And then wanting to try it out on Raspberry Pi was actually making sure that it worked on Linux. So I had actually used IBM Bluemix and I had set up a project and I had been using it along with Twilio and Google Voice to run my apartment front door entry system. And I had a plan where I could have an app that I'd give to my friends and just maybe five or ten friends and they could hit a button on the app and it would hit Blue Mix and say, you're authorized to come in my apartment for the next minute. And then if they rang up my door number in my apartment, it would go hit a Google Voice, which would ring several numbers, and then Twilio can hit a web endpoint, and that could be Bluemix, and it would ask for some XML, and Bluemix would look and see if someone had, one of my friends had tapped a button, and if they had, it could send the XML that plays a 1 and a 9 MP3 for like the dual tone uh, sounds that a phone makes, and then it would let you in, and so... Uh, I had that working for about a week, and then, then I gave up on it, so I haven't done it recently. This sounds really interesting. It kind of sounds like a Rube Goldberg machine. Very much so. Okay, for those that might not know, I'll link to it, but basically like a complex machine for a simple task. Um, let's be clear that the task was you're in your apartment, right? And you wanna your friends want to come in? Yeah. And um, you're, let's say, you're cooking or, or whatever, uh, you, they ring the doorbell, right? Or they, yeah. they, they, they ring the doorbell and like, you, you don't want to have to respond. Right. You want like it to be automated or something. Yeah. We, we actually, we used to host a Bible study at our apartment every week and maybe 15 people would come and it was a hassle to pull out our phone every time. So that was the motivation that we wanted them to just be able to either get in automatically during a certain time of day of just on Tuesday nights or to let our friends hit a button on their app and automatically the phone system would let them in. Right, right. And only a few people would have the app, right? Yep. Huh. And you actually had it working? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was pretty cool. Um, and it was so neat to have Swift running on the server. IBM is doing some super cool stuff there. But that was the first time I experienced the lack of breakpoints when Swift would crash on Linux. Ah, okay, so what do we do? Is that still the case, or what do we do now with, if we don't have breakpoints? Um, if you don't have breakpoints, just like any other more primitive situation where developers would just have a lot of print statements, you could see the what is happening at every line until it crashes so you could try that or you can uh, get a core dump from the servers and try and inspect that with ldb or gdb do we is that still the case or do we still not have breakpoints on on linux am i saying that right or uh yeah uh, we don't print out uh sorry we don't print out a stack trace if there's a crash on linux hmm. and that is something that the the Vapor IDE has uh, solved. There's a cool article they have. I think we could probably add that to the show notes. Sure. 
And there's definitely work going forward to make sure this is in the next version of Swift 4, probably Swift 4.1. And then is that something that you would have like in Xcode or whatever environment you're using when you're building for Linux or? Oh yeah, this works great on Apple platforms right now. It's fine. It's only on Linux that it was missing and it should be there in Swift 4.1. Okay, so then like where are you actually setting those breakpoints? Like are you in a separate IDE, like not Xcode, some other IDE, like Visual Studio Code or something? Oh, sorry. Uh, that was my error when I called it a breakpoint. I meant printing out a stack trace. Oh, oh okay, okay. My, my fault there. That's okay. So like when I set, when like let's say um, I have a crash in Xcode, I'm making like an iOS app, it um, kind of prints out the stack trace on the left in the project navigator area mm -hmm. uh, or the, I don't know what you call that, the navigator area maybe. Mm -hmm. um, you're saying that we don't have access to that stack trace information when uh, it crashes on Linux, when a program, Swift program crashes on Linux. Yeah, if you ran a program from the command line and it crashed, it would just print out right in your terminal. And on Linux, you don't have those either from the terminal or from viewing the logs through the Bluemix console or whatever it is. Okay, so but it sounds like we're going to get it soon. Yes, yes. And also, Carl Brown from IBM does have some good suggestions for using that core dump if you need it right away. Carl Brown. I don't know him. He's often uh, speaking at conferences or at the Blue Mix uh, booth at different events. Okay, cool. All right, so with the doorbell thing, was that purely just a um, Swift sort of Swift server, or did you also have some Raspberry Pi sort of uh, thing going on in there? No Raspberry Pi yet. This was entirely pre my experiments with the Raspberry Pi. Wow. So you've done some Swift on the server stuff. That's cool. I have, yeah. I, I'm excited to see how things get better. And I was really excited to see Brandon talking about some type-safe Swift on the server frameworks that might be coming out in the next year or so. Yeah, like the routing that he was talking about? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so how does making this little doorbell, sorry, I don't want to downplay it, making this doorbell, Swift server doorbell thing translate to then playing around with Swift on Raspberry Pi? Well, I had been buying some Amazon Echo devices around my home to turn lights on and off. And most of the switches are a little bit pricey at $25 or $30. But if you can connect a relay to a Raspberry Pi, a relay is only $4 and the Raspberry Pi is $30. So you can start doing some cooler things if you have your own logic running on a Raspberry Pi. What's a relay? Okay, so in electronics, if you want to uh, switch something on and off from a little device, like a microcontroller, Arduino, a Raspberry Pi, you need this little box called a relay, and it allows you to switch a large amount of current with just a very small output that you'd have from your Arduino or Raspberry Pi. Hmm. Okay. Basically, so, it's a switch. It's a it's a fancy switch. Okay, like on and off. Yep. And that relay is able to to communicate with your Raspberry Pi. You have to connect wires directly from your Raspberry Pi to the relay. Usually, those wires would only be a couple inches. 
And then does the lamp, let's say, connect to the relay? Yep. You'd plug it right in or you'd cut open some wires and you'd put them into the relay. Okay. And then where does, so then I'm assuming the wires end at the, at the Raspberry Pi and, and like you communicate with your phone, let's say to the Raspberry Pi. So there's no wire between your phone and the Raspberry Pi. Yes. The Raspberry Pi is connected to the Wi-Fi or something to Wi-Fi and your phone's connected to Wi-Fi and you, you message the Raspberry Pi. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. So does that mean I need one Raspberry Pi for every lamp? Um, unless there's some lamps that are close together. In my case, I have a heater that I want to turn on uh, in the bathroom when I have a shower. It's a little fireplace and that would require one relay and the Raspberry Pi, but then if I have more lights that I want to turn on, I just need to add a relay, and I can use the same Raspberry Pi. Okay, but aren't Raspberry Pis kind of expensive? They're like 35 bucks. They are. So if that's your only use for it, it's actually a poor choice. I mean, sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, people see this little device, and they get pretty pumped up that I should use it for everything, where (laughs) actually... Even a lot of these things I'm describing, um, you probably want to use a different microcontroller like the ESP32. That's a super popular one that's really powerful and it's only $11. Oh, okay. What's that called? The ESP32. ESP32. Okay, because I remember when we talked um, at Swift Summit backstage, you were saying that it can be more cost effective to... Um, make an automated home or a connected home um, using these little, you know, kind of like a DIY style with these microcontrollers as opposed to like buying a bunch of like home kit, let's say enabled uh, products because those are really expensive. Mm-hmm. So did I misunderstand that or is that true? You could definitely do it cheaper yourself if you, if you want to do it and are really good at it. But in my case, when things weren't working, I had to buy a logic analyzer for $100. And you might need a soldering iron, which could be $50. And uh-huh. so if you're just doing it for price, it's probably the wrong reason. But if okay. you're doing it for something exciting and for flexibility, that's totally the right reason to do it. Okay. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right. So let's say you want to actually like... How did Raspberry, how did Swift on Raspberry Pi, like, how does that start out? Like, let's say you decided, you were like, okay, I want to do this. Like, is it easy to do? Was there, like, work that already was done, um, like, to make Swift run on Raspberry Pi? Or did you do that work? Or how, how did, like, what are the state of things? And, like, how did we get there? Yeah. So, actually, the process involves a lot of sadness. If It's the first time that you're trying it out. <laughs> Uh, I know several people personally who've tried it out because they know it works, but there's lots of little pitfalls of trying to get the operating system on a micro SD card before you put it on the Raspberry Pi because that's required. And you need to use Ubuntu Mate if you want to use the Swift Package Manager. And I had tried two other operating systems before that. And then to get Swift installed, you have to download a pre-compiled package that Apple doesn't distribute at the moment. So you can go to the Swift on ARM Slack group 
or you can find a link on my GitHub package called Raspberry Swift, and my GitHub name is sheptane. And you'd have to unpack that at the root of your directory. So each of those needs to be done just right. But after that, you can start using Swift just like you would on your regular day-to-day -day job. And it is a pretty exciting thing once it's all set up properly. So you made like a little package or something that makes it easier for people to get up and running? I just uh, found a pre-compiled package of Swift that someone else has already built on the Swift on ARM channel. Um, this is uh, Uremo is his Twitter handle and um, GitHub handle. And he does the work of adding some packages to the master, ver uh, sorry, adding patches to the master version of Swift to make sure that it works on ARM because sometimes developers would make a change and they don't realize that it broke ARM. Uh, because internally, Apple doesn't run Swift on ARM on their continuous integration servers. And so that's the next step that I, I think will likely happen and will allow people to make sure that every change they make to the Swift language will make it, will keep working on these ARM devices. Say, say that part again. Um, that was really interesting. So you're saying that when things change in Swift, um, it might break something on on arm chips yeah so right now as you know swift is actually a couple repositories there's the language itself there's uh, a foundation which is rewrites of a lot of pieces of foundation that we know on mac and ios and uh, package manager and each of those will have some tests that get run when you make a change and right now, those are run on some servers. It might be Jenkins or Travis. And they're probably run on Mac machines and maybe Linux machines as well. But they're probably all using x86 processors. Hmm. And so to really be safe, we should add a couple of ARM devices, whether those are Raspberry Pis or anything else, so that the tests will also make sure that you didn't break something that was required for that type of processor. Is that related to the Swift compatibility suite, sort of, in a way? It is an, an equivalent of the Swift compatibility suite for hardware architectures. Oh, okay. But aren't iPhones and iPads and Apple Watches and Apple TVs, aren't these running ARM chips? That is an excellent point that you make. They are running ARM chips. Uh, as you know, ARM chips are the some of the most popular chips in the world. This year, they're going to sell 15 billion ARM chips in the wow. world. Yeah, which is two per person. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I think there are particular things about running it on Linux when you don't have actual foundation there. Mm. I haven't gotten into the, the real bugs. They're all open on the Swift bug Jira, and you can read them all. Um, but there is a couple of particular ones that uh, still need to be resolved before Swift 4 works well on the Raspberry Pi. So far, I've been doing all my development with Swift 3.1, even though Swift 4 has been out for a little bit. So besides Apple platform development, uh, Swift on the server is like the big sort of next frontier in terms of 
mm. uh, Swift becoming um, the most popular general purpose programming language. And uh, so that means Swift running on Linux because most servers, I, I'm assuming, run run Linux. Mm -hmm. And so what you're saying is that most of these Linux servers are running on an x86 chip. Yep, most likely. Okay, so that means that it's not really that much of a priority f uh, to make sure that Swift is uh, running successfully or not breaking on these um, ARM chips that, that are non like Apple device chips. Yeah, it, I would say that it's still a priority, but there aren't good tools to show if something has broken. And so mm -hmm. even though people care, it, it's something that can get missed and can take a few days or, or weeks to notice that something is broken. So what would be some of the work uh, that needs to be done uh, to include these ARM chips in the, the hardware kind of test compatibility? Well... This is actually related to what I do every day at work is setting up machines to regularly run tests. In this case, what could be done is to have a rack of 10 or 20 Raspberry Pis and they could run the Jenkins client software on them. And whenever a change is made to Swift as a pull request on GitHub, it could pull the change down and run the tests and make sure that they work even on ARM chips. And then it would post the results back to that pull request to show whether they passed everything or if they failed for some very specific reason. So who who would do that work? And like who is doing the work now for for Swift on Linux and x86? Like where are those test servers? And like who would create these uh, test? Who who would set up these test ARM Raspberry Pis or whatever? Um, so Apple is uh, currently doing all the work for the x86 processors. And I can't actually talk anything about the other bit of the question. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to pass. I'm just going to skip right over that then. <laughs> 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 oh, man. Okay, so uh, let's say you want to start programming on like a Raspberry Pi, like what are you, I don't understand, like, what are you actually doing? Like, I, I have one. I think it might be an Arduino, Arduino. Okay. Um, and maybe we can, we can talk about that too in a sec. But like, you plug in this computer, little, it's like, a, it's like about as big as a deck of cards, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, do I, I hook that up to a monitor and then I hook that up to a keyboard and a mouse or something? Like, what do I do? Like, how do I just start? Yeah. So what happens is the very first step is you plug in your Raspberry Pi, you connect it to a keyboard and monitor, and you realize that maybe there's no micro SD card in there with an operating system. Because Wait, actually, you need power too, right? <laughs> you do. You need an adapter that can supply at least one amp of current, which is a little more than a regular USB plug would supply. Okay, sorry, continue. And so you... Plug all those things in. You need a micro SD card with whatever operating system you want to use. I would advocate for Ubuntu Mate because that was the only one I got working out of the three operating systems I tried. And you type in the Wi-Fi password. Well, wait, where are we typing this though? I don't understand. Like, what do I see on the monitor? Oh, you see just a regular operating system that looks like Mac OS X from eight years ago, maybe. 
Wait, like like I see Mac OS? You'd see no, you just see files and uh, like is it like a command line? There's a real graphical user interface with folders and Oh, so that's and, like Ubuntu, right? Ubuntu yep. is like a Linux or, or something. It's yep. like it's okay, so it's like a graphical okay. I've never used Ubuntu. Okay, so I'm seeing this Ubuntu graphical, you know, I'm seeing a desktop with files. Yeah. And then what do I do? Well, you could do everything on this computer if you wanted, but it's quite a slow computer. It's only one gigahertz, and it it doesn't have a lot of the things that we appreciate from our fancy laptops. So I could surf the web. I could uh, write my book report. Yep. You okay. Could, yep. Uh, probably what you do is you type in your Wi-Fi password and you turn on SSH access. And then from then on, you do everything from your laptop or your desktop computer through SSH into that machine. Oh, okay. So you switch, you basically turn on, and you don't even need, well, you probably would leave the monitor on still because you might want to see. No, I unplug all of that. Oh, and because then you're basically like you're SSH'd into that computer and you could see the output of that computer on your really fast computer. Yeah. Yep. But you're still, it's still going to go slow because it's still happening on that Raspberry Pi, let's say. Well, from the perspective of a text terminal, 1.2 gigahertz is really fast. It's just slow when it's trying to run your regular graphical user interface oh, applications. Wow. Okay, so you SSH into kind of like how you can um, like basically terminal into like a Linux server on AWS or something. It's kind of like that, right? Like I'm not really, I'm using my personal computer at home, mm -hmm. but I'm actually using some server in some server farm. Yeah, it's exactly the same thing, except the computer is actually two feet away instead of <laughs> 2,000. <laughs> okay, okay. And then I'm assuming then maybe you can use Xcode to write Swift files, but then you load those Swift files onto your Raspberry Pi somehow, onto Ubuntu. You could use Xcode to edit some Swift files, and then you could copy them over and compile them on the Raspberry Pi. I found that it's a little easier to edit the files directly on the Raspberry Pi, either through the command line using something like Vim or Emacs, or using a different text editor that allows you to edit files remotely, something like Visual Studio Code or Atom or Sublime Text. And okay. if you use an application like Transmit, that's a really popular Mac FTP client then you can just double click the file in transmit and then edit it through your regular text editor. And when you hit save, it'll send it over to the Raspberry Pi, any of the changes that you've made. Okay. And when you say compile, it's still Swift compiling. Um, you have access to foundation, right? Because, or do you? I mean, Swift, so because this is Ubuntu, it's not Linux, right? Or Ubuntu is a flavor of Linux, they say. And so you do have the version of Foundation that you get on any Linux machine, which is a little bit different from Apple's version of Foundation that is available on all Mac and iOS machines. But the APIs are the same, right? The APIs are the same, and so far they've implemented about 80% of all the things that Apple had. Right, yeah, Chris Bailey talked about that um, you know, at Swift Summit. Okay, so what... 
Are there different, like, let, let's not talk about third-party stuff uh, or, you know, I'm talking about, like, first-party, like, Ubuntu or Raspberry Pi. Like, are there different ways that you communicate with, let's say, if you want to communicate with, like, the Wi-Fi or some sensor or, mm-hmm. like, are, are there APIs and, like, li- like, frameworks that you have to use? Or can you basically do all that using Foundation? Mm. So that's a great question and is actually where a big part of the challenge comes from that there is a lot of different options and people usually don't talk about what option they used or there's so few people doing it that there's not a whole lot of of good information for whatever particular setup you might have so the most straightforward way is to turn what they call a pin on and off that would be one of the electrical connections from the Raspberry Pi. And you can set it to uh, a high voltage level, which would be, uh, I think, three and a half volts or low voltage level, which is zero. And you can do that right from Swift by writing to something that looks like a file inside the file system. Hmm. Okay, so um, give me give me an example, like a name of one of the sensors that you might attach to the Raspberry Pi? Just like what's, give me a name of one of them. Okay, well, the first thing you'll do is just connect an LED and then you can see if the switch went high or low and it'll just show a little bit of light when things work. Okay, so let's let's say we have uh, an LED. We connect the LED to uh, a port on the Raspberry Pi. Like is it a USB port or? Um. The Raspberry Pi has something like 40 pins sticking out of it. Ah. And so you'd have to connect a wire to one of those pins. Ah. And if you're going to experiment, you'll likely have something, it's called a breadboard, and it has maybe 200 little holes in it that let you connect up circuits just with springs inside without needing to use any solder or Mm. tape or anything like that. Okay, so I got my LED, I connected to this pin, yep. and I'm assuming, you said there's 40, so that means that pin has a number. Yep. Like, I connected this LED to pin number one. Yep. Then, um, somehow, that pin communicates to a file on the the board, and uh, using Swift, I just say, like, you know, file manager, write the string on or off, or one or zero, or true or false, Yep. You know, to that file, and then the pin uh, monitors changes to that file. So if I write um, yes or on, let, let's just say um, on, mm-hmm. on and off, let's say. Um, if I write on, then the light will turn on. Mm-hmm. Wow. And what, um, so you don't really have to do, like, how do you connect the file to the pin? Do you have to do anything in terms of connecting the file to the pin? That's just magic of the linux kernel that's running on the raspberry pi it's actually doing all the work to connect that file to the pin okay but so you have to find that where to write that file yep is that hard uh no that's in all the documentation it's just in dev or sys or something like that and it has a name gpio1 gpio2 gpio3 wow Okay, so it sounds like the hardest part then is just getting an environment set up. Yes, for sure. Okay, awesome. Now, then the question is, uh, is there anyone, and, and maybe you can't answer this, but is there anyone doing work to like 
um, ship this little this little product. I mean, it's basically like any other computer, mm-hmm. um, like an iPhone or a Mac, any other programmable thing that's just out of the box, ready to go to be programmed. So you can imagine, imagine like um, a little square um, about or a, a deck of cards. You know, mm-hmm. about as big as the deck of cards. And it has a battery pack, whatever, I don't know, or you plug it in. And um, it has the, the it, it has its own, like, it, um, you can connect to it somehow easily, let's say with an iPhone and get it on the Wi-Fi super mm-hmm. easily. And then you can SSH into it super easy without even having to t- connect it to a monitor. Like you can already SSH into it. Mm-hmm. And then it just exposes all of its inputs and outputs in some whatever manner that it wants to and so all that you really are doing is like your your environment is super easy to set up and then you can just quickly start programming is there anybody that's doing that or are there people that are talking about that yeah uh actually if you're okay with not using swift you go buy an arduino <laughs> 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 you go buy an arduino right now and everything works amazing it is so simple and not only not only are the outputs so easy but the inputs are so easy and there's libraries for almost any chip you'd want to interface with so if that's your goal that's actually a far better solution than trying to jam swift on the raspberry pi <laughs> <laughs> okay, and I think I've seen um, these like blocks. There's this one where it's like these blocks, and they're super easy to like connect to each other. So then the question is, what is different between Raspberry Pi and Arduino, and mm. why? Like, when is like is Swift running on Arduino? Why is if, if it's not? Like, talk about that. Uh, right. So Swift is not running on the Arduino, and the Arduino runs at about 20 megahertz right now. And the Raspberry Pi is 1.2 gigahertz. So okay, say that again. The Arduino runs at about 20 megahertz. Okay, so that sounds like a small number. That That's quite a small number, but if your software is the only thing running on there, there's no operating system that is taking away control from your program. And there's no other programs trying to run at the same time to write stuff to the file system or to show a GUI up on a screen. It's actually pretty reasonable. Okay. And if your goal is to interact with that device, there is an app actually that won some awards last year called Blink. It's B-L-Y-N-K. And you can connect it to either an Arduino or some of these other ESP chips. And you can turn pins on and off right from your phone, and you can even drag in inputs. And they have an interesting way of using in-app purchases to get more energy to make a fancier app if you want. Wow. So there is cool stuff happening with hardware, even with iPhone apps. But you can't use Swift on that. And I'd say that would be more of a two or three years down the road when you might potentially be able to use Swift on that. Okay, and and why is that? I mean, you mentioned 20 megahertz versus Raspberry Pi is 100-something gigahertz, I think you said. Like, what? why can't we run Swift on Arduino? I don't understand. So Swift currently relies on some things that an operating system would give you, like mm. like being able to allocate memory on the, he- the heap and to be able to have threads and stuff. Mm. And so um, with... 
a C compiler that would go to these microcontrollers, uh, it's fine just doing everything without threads where Swift at the moment relies on those, but it is open source. And so people might be able to add this extra mode where you may not get threads, but you can still use Swift on one of these microcontrollers. So it's, it's certainly possible, feasible, but it would just take some work to get there. Interesting. And what pro, uh, what language are people using? I mean, you, you made it sound like you don't even need to program like with a language, but if you were going to use a language with Arduino, what language are people using? Um, the Arduino IDE has a language that looks a lot like C, and it uh, I think they call it wiring that has most of the bits of C, like you need semicolons, and functions look the same, and variables look the same. Um, but it's just a little bit of a limited subset of the C language. So that's popular. And then the next most popular ones would be uh, Python for a lot of these devices. They made a version of Python special to run on them called MicroPython. And then uh, Lua is another one that's popular. Hmm. Okay. And what are what are like all the players? So you have... You have Arduino, you have Raspberry Pi, and you have ESP that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, what's is ESP or Raspberry Pi? Is that Arduino? Is that a separate thing? So it's an amazing story over the last five or seven years that it started out just as a chip that people would connect to their Arduino to give them Wi-Fi capability because the Arduino can't even connect to the Wi-Fi for most of them. And then people realized that to give this Wi-Fi capability, it actually has a little microcontroller inside it. And hey, we can program this. And so someone was able to use the regular Arduino environment to program originally the ESP8266. And then it just exploded in popularity because you can get these for $5 instead of the $25 that Arduino was charging. Hmm. And Arduino did a cool thing. They released a lot of their hardware schematics and software as open source. And that's really what has caused a lot of the community to explode and become so popular and have people sharing things. Okay, so can we run Swift on the ESP thing? Uh, No, not yet. It would need the similar challenges of being able to change it to not require threading and stuff like that. Okay, and then you said that the open sourcing of the Arduino schematics led to uh, the, I was at least a big part of the growth of the Arduino community. Yeah, there's a lot of third-party versions of Arduino that you can buy that will all work with the same Arduino IDE that you can download with your two clicks and press one button to upload your code to that device. That used to be a really complicated process. Okay, and is Raspberry Pi, are those schematics open source? Um, the, the chip details are certainly not, it's a Broadcom chip, but uh, there may be some schematic details that are open source because there are third parties that do release things like the orange pie and other things that should work with the same type of software. Okay. All right. I want to, I want to wrap this, um, conversation up but i feel like it's really really interesting but i'm kind of i want to try to get an understanding of like what we're really even talking about um so i want to kind of ask a couple questions and see like if we agree so um essentially what we're talking about 
are microchips, right? Like microcomputers, correct? Yeah, in particular, they call these microcontrollers. Microcontrollers, okay. The Arduino and the ESP32 or 8266 is a microcontroller because it doesn't have a real operating system on it. Okay, okay. And um, these are usually um, display uh, less, right? They don't have displays. You're right. Uh, and, and in fact, they don't even have really any um, ways to interact with them. Like, like they don't have any buttons, really, right? And, until you add them yourself. Yep. Right. Okay. Um, they're low cost. Yes. Okay. And they 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 kind of have this a similar purpose. Like you can put all these different sensors on them, but the the point of them is to like basically have a almost like a low cost satellite computer kind of right yes now that the new versions have network connectivity you can do that in the a few years ago you didn't have any network connectivity so it was also a low cost satellite computer but you couldn't even connect to it okay okay so because essentially what we're saying is i want to be able to put like a really inexpensive computer in this corner and i want to be able to communicate to it uh, over uh, the wi- over Wi-Fi. Yep. And I want to maybe be able to add different sensors, mm-hmm. weather sensors, uh, temperature sensors, mm-hmm. light sensors, different kinds of sensors. So it's like kind of configurable. Yep. Okay. Okay. And do we agree that this is not only fun and interesting and a really cool way for people to learn about programming, but more importantly, I think, um, do we agree that this is something that's going to continue and, and grow and like going to become more important? Like it's going to be sort of uh, beyond the DIY. It's going to be a pr- like a um, like a a platform. I mean, it kind of already is, but like beyond sort of just education and, and kind of DIY. It's definitely exploding, just like you said, and it's definitely these platforms that you can use for almost whatever you want, and it will never be something you have to do, uh, but is getting to be something that you can try and do something fun on the side. And there's becoming this whole industry where you can then take that product that you made on the side and start a whole company around it if you really want to. See, that's where I think that's probably where it is. Like, it's probably not going to, I'm wondering, is it going to be on the level of, let's say, like a company like Apple creating this little this little thing hmm. that you program, like an iPhone, mm-hmm. right? Um, or is it going to be a smaller company that creates this little thing that you can program that that's their business, right? They sell these little programmable boxes mm-hmm. that you then can either play with, learn, or potentially create your own business. Like yeah. I'm wondering what that is, but that's kind of besides the point. Let's just agree that they're definitely this is growing. It's going to continue to grow, and and there is going to, there is something there. Um, do we agree that we want to be able to use Swift on that thing? Yeah, for all the reasons that we like to use Swift on on an iPhone app, if we have the chance for its safety and its speed and its ability to use great tooling. I think that we would want those same things to be able to have on these microcontrollers. Okay. And it's we're still in early days and it's probably maybe it's not a priority. What what are your feeling there? Do you wish that we were 
we got there faster or do you feel like it's inevitable? What are your thoughts? I, I think it's inevitable, but Python took 18 years before they had MicroPython. And so if we take seven years before we have MicroSwift, I think that would be fine. And it would be really cool for kids using the Playgrounds app on the iPad learning Swift to then be able to use it on their Arduino and do cool stuff around their apartment. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so that was really fun. I want to move on, but I have to ask, um, do you have a couple more extra minutes to talk about um, improving Swift compile times or... I, I hear some clinging and some clanging over there. Um, <laughs> my my son is excited to get to playing again. But, okay, so uh, I'm going to leave it up to you. We, we can talk for a couple minutes. Uh, okay. Yeah, not super deep. Okay, cool. So um, what what are your thoughts? Okay, actually, let's talk about Buck then, because this is something that I've heard about, mm-hmm. and um, I thought you couldn't really do it. I've heard mixed sort of things, but you're saying that you are – Tell us about what you're doing with Buck, if you can, um, uh, what you're doing with Buck, essentially. Sure. So most iOS developers use Xcode, and they they build it locally, and then they'll push up to uh, GitHub or something else, and they can have a CI machine that will run tests on it. That CI machine could be running Jenkins or Travis or whatever, and that usually runs Xcode build from the command line which is uh, almost exactly the same as Xcode when you hit that run button. Right. And it works quite well, and they'll put the files that it builds into drive data. But as you know, after you've done iOS for a few years, that drive data is not always a perfect representation of what your code is. Mm. And so what Facebook had done internally is they built a tool called Buck, and they wanted those intermediate files to always be a perfect representation of your source code. And so the, they were able to be very successful, and they made a version that worked with iOS. And more recently, Uber has jumped on board, and they and Airbnb, so there's three of us as companies using it wholeheartedly, and Uber and Airbnb are both using it for mixed Swift and Objective-C projects. Wow. And so okay. that's a, a really cool step. And hopefully we'll be in the mainline version of Buck pretty soon. And it allows you to make these fast builds and share those uh, intermediate files even on a network server so that you can just pull them instead of building everything. So instead of nine minutes, if it's a build for master, it should be 13 seconds. Wow. Okay. So, um, can you wholeheartedly say that the work uh, that you're, you've done with Buck, like integrating it into your build uh, build workflow, has improved your uh, mixed project compile times? Um, we still need to use Xcode build in case we want to. Uh, we want to support both in case Xcode build amazingly becomes so fast. Right. And so. If we start releasing the Buck built app uh, to the App Store, we, we don't need to use Xcode build for as much stuff, but we still want to make sure it works for both. So there's always that challenge when you build your own tooling that Apple hasn't built is you want to make sure you don't diverge too much. And so that's where we're in at the moment. 
But like if I'm just doing my daily development, like I'm just a developer and I'm making a feature or something like that, and I hit build, um, are you can are you having Buck build some of those builds or like you know during my like basic day to day workflow, like is Buck building that stuff? And then if so, are compile times improved? Um, compile times are definitely faster when you use Buck, uh, but you can't necessarily change what the build button does inside Xcode. Mm. And so you'd need to either create a new target with a build script that would go call the buck command, and then you'd miss out on some of the cool UI that Xcode has. Mm. Or you could build it from the command line, which works great. And a lot of engineers internally do that because they want the test to be so fast or their incremental builds to be really fast. Uh, but not everyone feels comfortable with going to the terminal just to compile their app and then run it in the simulator. Okay, and I thought Buck only worked with Objective-C projects. You're telling me that it works with mixed um, Objective-C and Swift. Uh, does it work with Swift-only projects? Yeah, you can use it currently with just Objective-C or just Swift. And the key bit that we have internally at Airbnb Uber is the, the mixed projects because there's some special cases that we've had to have teams to uh, take this open source project and build an internal branch for ourselves. Okay, so it but it does so it does work on mixed projects. Yep. And so this is something that you can do. Yep. Uh, is this something that you can you can kind of read about? Like, is this work that you guys are doing specifically that we can read about, or is it still sort of? internal is there a lot of like setup that you kind of need to figure out on your own if you're doing a, a mixed project or have you guys been sharing this information um we shared a blog post about this uh just a couple months ago which is a pretty good overview of using uh buck for swift builds uh but there's there's not a gr lot of great resources if you want to do this yourself unless it's just a plain swift build and then the buck documentation is pretty good on their website i'm pretty impressed okay well i'm going to mention this to uh our platform engineer uh and you know we definitely want to improve compile times um and awesome um so i'm definitely going to mention it uh mention it to him um is there before you go? I don't. I don't want to keep it much longer. Is there anything else that we can do? Like, what would you say to improve our Swift compile times? Like, I know everyone talks about explicitly typing things. Don't use the ternary operator. Like, what are your? What, what can we do? What are your feelings in terms of? Is it improving? Will it improve? I would say if you can stay up to date with uh, recent versions of Swift, and if you can uh, modulize your code, um, Xcode is able to keep the cached versions of built frameworks that you haven't touched pretty well. That's a, a good benefit. And then um, just use some, uh, stay up to date on what people are sharing on how you can get insights into uh, what, what might be taking a long time, whether it's build flags or things like that. Even just this last week, some good articles have come out. Okay. Yeah, I hear you on the modularizing your code because essentially what you're saying is, um, let's say you're working in a particular file, but that file really doesn't have to do with some other part of your app that's in the same module, but doesn't really need to be. Like, mm -hmm. it could potentially be this, um, you know, this first, you know, this uh, private uh, library that you you know, modularize 
then when you hit build, it doesn't have to rebuild that whole, the whole product. Uh, it doesn't have to build that module again. Yeah. 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 Okay. I think uh, we're looking into doing that as well. Cool. Okay. Awesome. Um, we could, we could go on and uh, talk. I'm probably going to try to talk with you more about, um, I know, I feel like we could just have a whole episode on this, the Swift <laughs> build time. So I don't know, maybe either I'll have you on or if you could go and chat with someone else on a podcast about the build time stuff. I feel like that information is really important. I know um, the Swift team and the Swift community is really like working to improve that. So um, uh, hopefully things get better. We all deal with that as Swift developers. So thank you for your work that you're doing um, on, on on the Buck stuff and also the Raspberry Pi stuff. It's super awesome. Thanks so much. Um, okay, so let let's see. Uh, before I, before I, you go, uh, where can people contact you online? You can find me on Twitter at Stephen Hepting, H E P T I N G. Okay, awesome. I'll link to that in the show notes. And yeah, Stephen. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Uh, you know, you wanted to be a mechanic, and then you uh, realized that you probably wasn't going to be the kind of the best uh, long-term idea. And your mom, she like had you go on this uh, engineering, take a kid to work day, and you kind of uh, started. I mean, you like tinkering with stuff, so you started like playing around with the engineering. Uh, and you you did uh, electrical engineering. You were playing around with computers, but then you did electrical engineering um, in college, and you uh, were making this like software that like design chip people would run their designs against, like it's almost like a test. And then you know you did that for like three years, I think. And then you told your boss uh, you had a good weekend, and you told your boss within forty five minutes of walking in that Monday that you you know decided that you have to learn to be a mobile developer because you saw your grandparents using an iPad, and you were like, "Wow, this is amazing! It's the future. I need to be a part of a part of that." <laughs> and so you quit your job and you taught yourself programming, uh, you know, not programming, um, iOS development. Um, and it sounded like four months or something, you studied iOS development, and then you interviewed and interviewed, you got your first job at Yammer, and then you worked at Twitter, and now you're at Airbnb, and um, you're doing this cool Raspberry Pi stuff, and you know, talking at conferences, and anyways, thank you so much for sharing that story with us, and I look forward to all the work that you're doing, um, to, to see where it goes, and I look forward to seeing you again uh, in the future. Thanks so much for having me, Gary. And that's the show, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Swift Coders podcast. Feel free to share the show with a friend, leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time, go swiftly, my friends.